I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, it's been a while since I've recorded, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting going again. And, uh, I have a real special guest, Adam Leventer. Adam is an entrepreneur, published author, podcast host, executive strategist. He's currently the uh, CEO of Scriberbase, which we're going to go into, uh, I'm sure, in a little, little bit of depth. And uh, he's also a uh, lecturer at the University of Toronto, external advisor to Bain & Company, runs his own podcast called E2, uh, Entrepreneurs Exposed, and uh, is the author of The Subscription Boom, Why an Old Bullet Business Model, The Future of Commerce. Adam, it's going to be really interesting to have a discussion with you. So welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Alon. Really appreciate it. So, so Adam, you know, we, uh, we talked a little bit off camera. You know, you may not know this, but I grew up in the, in the venture capital world and I literally witnessed the old school software businesses transforming into, uh, into SaaS companies. So I'm super interested to, uh, to hear your take on it and, and, and you know, where we're, where we're headed. But I want to take a step way back. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by the origination stories of entrepreneurs. So how did you get to this space? Uh, you know, what, what did your childhood look like? You know, did, was this kind of predestined for you or, you know, were there a lot of twists and turns along the way? I think, you know, childhood was pretty rocky financially. Parents, you know, moved jobs a few different times. My father became an entrepreneur after he left his father's company. So I think he was a bit lost for what he wanted to do, and he found himself in the seat of his own business. So I, I guess, was witness to entrepreneurship early on, but I fell into it accidentally. You know, I was an undergrad and then went on to do my MBA and, and spent some time in the corporate world. And after a few years, just felt like I wasn't a fit for that mold. I didn't like the bureaucracy of it. I don't think I'm great at following rules. So after a sort of departure, let's say, I, I found myself tinkering with my own stuff back in 2010. And, you know, thankfully, 11 years later now, I'm still at the helm of my own thing and really enjoying it. And, and you know, growing up, did you think that you were going to even, was business where you wanted to go? Was there ever uh, something else in your mind uh, or was that not always the path? Yeah. No. Uh, so. I thought law school was going to be my thing. I didn't know business was going to be my path. And I think early on, you know, I don't know why my thinking patterns were this way, but in undergrad, I remember thinking that I had to have all my shit figured out, that I needed to have a linear career path, you know, undergraduate degree, postgrad in law, join a law firm, become a lawyer. That was sort of what I had in mind. And after tanking the LSAT a couple of times, you quickly learn that, that that's not in the cards. And so I had to pivot early and thought business was super interesting and, and frankly, very happy that I didn't end up going to law school. But yeah, that's sort of the story. You know, it's such a good point. I, I speak to so many young entrepreneurs that think they have to have everything figured out or young people, my entrepreneurs, forget about that, young people that are 
entering university and think that they have to have the rest of their life figured out. And, 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 and I'm a huge believer that the best entrepreneurs are those that thrive on uncertainty. So I, uh, you know, I, I try and give people the advice that, you know, just try a lot of things and find what you love. But it's, it's, it's hard for them to kind of accept that as a path because, you know, the schooling system is so rigid in the way that it, uh, you know, teaches people to, to not only learn, but to think, you know, what, what would be your advice to those, to those, those individuals, uh, you know, coming from someone who, who's thought that they have to have it figured out and have clearly figured it out just fine many years later? I mean, look, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm 43. I'm still trying to figure out life. I feel like, you know, this chapter is a chapter of many in this life, right? So I've taken the pressure off myself and I wish I would have done that earlier. I find that entrepreneurs who are exceptional are those that learn how to fail fast and accept failure as an experiment or learn failure as an experiment or a test. Whereas early on, you know, in my early 20s, I remember having all this anxiety around certainty. And if I was to fail at something, that would really hit home for me emotionally. That was a hard thing to overcome. And so learning to accept failure as just, you know, in entrepreneurial terms, a small pilot, I think is a huge shift in mindset. And that's what I would have, that's what I would, would provide, you know, in terms of advice, that's what I would share with under entrepreneurs. And that's what I wish I shared with myself. You mentioned pressure and the idea of taking pressure off yourself to some may sound counterintuitive, but I completely know what you're saying and I agree with you. Right. It's, it's amazing how, how much you can accomplish when you're, when you're in a, you know, in a flow state, right? It's like, this is a new thing, a flow state, but touch upon, you know, why you think having too much pressure on yourself is detrimental. Well, pressure is stress, right? It's a form of stress. And in entre, in entrepreneurial ventures, I mean, if you're at the helm of a fast growing company and, and any founder, at the helm of a growing business will tell you this. There's enough pressure in that role as it is. So external emotional pressure or anxiety uh, that you put on yourself is not helping. It's not helping you. It's not helping your business. So being able to sort of separate yourself from that emotional stress, I think, is a huge strength that good entrepreneurs have. I mean, accepting the fact that there's a certain level of emotional stress involved at the best of times, frankly, when you're scaling a business is enough. I mean, I think what people do is they confuse pressure with drive or work ethic. They think that you have to have that pressure and feel that pressure to have the drive or have the work ethic. Where you don't. Like you can work your ass off and enjoy what you're doing and not have those external those externalities of you know what 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 you're describing. And I think it's a great word of pressure. But you know, people people combine the two and think that you have to feel that level of stress to feel like you're working hard. Yeah, well, what, what I see common is entrepreneurs who think that, you know, if they don't have this pressure that they put on themselves or they don't have this edge, they're, they're going to lose, you know, some, they're going to lose some ability that they might otherwise have, right, to grow their business, that they need this anxiety, they need this stress, they need this pressure to succeed. And, you know, I remember listening to a podcast by Dan Harris. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called 10% Happier. It's based on his experience as an anchor in New York and his experience with depression and anxiety and, you know, his panic attack on air, which I think, you know, most people have heard about or seen. The biggest 
argument that he gets when he talks to entrepreneurs about meditation is that people don't want to adopt the practice because they feel like they're going to lose this edge that they have. They're going to lose their grit, their scrappiness if they get too calm. And frankly, the data says otherwise, you know, great, I don't know, great leaders, i.e. Ray Dalio or Richard Branson, musicians like Paul McCartney. I mean, folks that are exceptional, there's so many, like so many examples of this. These are people that practice meditation regularly. So I would agree. I mean, I, I don't think it's helpful to put that pressure on yourself. And if you can relieve yourself of that pressure, that's going to be advantageous. You know, we, we talk a lot about strategic thinking as it relates to one's business model, how to sell, how to grow quicker. But we don't talk a lot about the, uh, you know, the, the, the strategic thinking that goes into you know, maximizing your own potential. And, and, and one of those things is, is maximizing your own potential through uh, exercises and mental health. Uh, I, I, I've been very open. I've, I've struggled with uh, anxiety and depression in my life. I meditate, you know, I work out religiously. I do a lot of things. Uh, and I think about my mental health the same way as I would think about whether I'm optimizing the margins in my business. You know, we, we, you touched upon meditation as, as one tool, but how often do you do an audit of yourself? Um, and are there any other tools? Cause I, I don't like leaving people with this opaqueness of just don't put pressure on yourself because as you and I both know, that's almost impossible unless you have tools, mm. you know, at your disposal and things to do. So to be a little more, more prescriptive, you know, is, are there any prescriptive, you know, techniques that, that, that you've used or have found to be effective? Meditation being a great example. In my experience with anxiety and stress in my own life, there's a few things that I've done that I've found to be very helpful. You mentioned a few already. One being exercise, two meditation, three nutrition. Absolutely. A few other tools that I find to be helpful are spending time outdoors in nature, um, spending time journaling. So getting my thoughts out of my head and onto a page. And I've done this, you know, morning, noon, and night when I feel a sense of anxiety or I feel a sense of stress. I get to the pen and paper as fast as I can. And it does, it sounds a little bit crazy, right? Just, just journaling your thoughts, sort of getting stuff out of your head, but it's unbelievably effective. Yeah. I mean, there are times where depending on what's going on in my life that I'll really struggle with sleep. I, I struggle with falling asleep and my mind is racing at a million miles a minute. And I, I know there's a lot of listeners that can relate to this. And when that happens, um, I get out of bed, I go downstairs I grab a glass of water and I get pen and paper out as soon as possible. And I just journal. And that to me, like it's effective at relaxing the mind, relaxing the body and just resetting. So journaling, I, I, I want to throw out there as another tool for people. You know, it's, it's amazing. You, you have these young entrepreneurs that come into the, the workforce and they look around and what they, what goes through their head is they're having these, these internal struggles is I've got to be the only person. I look around and everyone looks like they have their shit together. And the reality is it's not fucking true, right? Like we, we know that and everyone else is thinking the same thing. You know, I, I, I've never had a problem being my authentic self and reaching out. Uh, I, I don't really have any shame. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed because I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about, but I know there's a lot of people that do struggle with that. You know, would you have any, you know, words of advice for those people that, that don't know how to start? 
trying to find a community of people that they can speak to because a huge part of 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 of, of helping yourself is a not is knowing that you're not alone and b having a community, a community of people that 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 you can lean on for support i want to say two things about that one is there's absolutely no shame in self-awareness and there's no shame in asking for help in fact i'd say the exact opposite it's a strength to be self-aware and it's a strength to ask for help so again this is a shift in mindset the fact that a lot of young entrepreneurs walk around with a brave face with this sort of quote unquote imposter syndrome at a 10 on 10 level and by the way everybody struggles with imposter syndrome I'm not saying nobody does. I mean, I do every day. Everybody does. But you got to be able to dial that down from, you know, overheating at, at 10 out of 10 on the imposter syndrome scale. Dial it back and just recognize that to your point, Alon, nobody has their shit totally figured out. Even top, top performers don't. And there's a book that I just read called um, it's Six Months Now. So it, it goes a little bit you know, this is, I guess, winter that I was reading this. It's called Selling Naked by Jesse Horwitz. And this is, a, by the way, a perfect book for folks that are interested in starting a direct-to-consumer brand. Um, it's an amazing e-com read. It's really very strategic and tactical. But at the end, Jesse Horwitz, who's um, one of the co-founders in Hubble Contacts in, in New York City, and he's the author, he devotes this entire chapter to mental health, self-awareness, and the tools and practices that he preaches and that he's had experience with as a founder CEO. And he talks openly about how therapy is a strength, right? How even at times when he was scaling Hubble, the pressure was so intense, he had to take you know, anti-anxiety medication every single day to get through the day. And in fact, he says, that wasn't, you know, just shifting my thinking into believing that that wasn't a weakness, that in fact, that's what I needed at that time. That to me was huge. I mean, I've never read that kind of vulnerability from a founder CEO before, where he's openly saying, like, not only did I see a therapist, I had to put myself on anti-anxiety medication to be able to get through the day at Hubble. And that went on for months. But sometimes that's what it takes. And frankly, that's the kind of self-awareness that I think people miss. Yeah, and I love that the stigma is being removed from this sort of stuff because I think we spend way too much time in business thinking just purely tactical and, and not looking inward because I think a huge part of my success, and I say this quite often, is my superpower is my self-awareness. And it's the reason I've been successful. It's a reason that I can be a good leader uh, because I am vulnerable and people you know, trust me and, and relate to me. Um, and I, I really do believe people need to spend a lot more time you know, looking internally as opposed to just looking externally as they're building their businesses. But that's difficult. And some are born with that kind of innate skill set and some aren't. You know, and what, what's your opinion on that? Because I have, you know, I really believe that for whatever reason, I was born self-aware. My DNA, my mother is a, is a clinical psychologist that specializes in emotional intelligence in children. And from the day I was born, I just remember kind of knowing that I, that I had this ability. And then I, I look at others that they don't even know who they are. They don't even know that they're awkward. They don't even know that they're weird. And unfortunately, I don't know what to tell some of these people 
because I, I, you know, I think like anything in life, self-awareness is a spectrum, right? You have people that are completely non-self-aware and you have others that are extremely self-aware and you have everything in the middle, you know, what's your opinion and what can people do to enhance their self-awareness? Because I truly believe self-awareness is the key that unlocks your potential. Because if you don't know what you're good at and you don't know what you're not good at, and you can't be honest with yourself, you can't double down on your strengths and you can't, you know, uh, find others to complement your weaknesses. Well, you were blessed to have a mother that was a clinical psychologist. I mean, oh, I know. <laughs> you, you come by it honestly. Yeah. So good for you. And, and that's incredible. I think for our generation and, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I think a lot of us were brought up in a household where self-awareness just wasn't a thing. Talking about emotions in the house, that really wasn't a thing. That's not something that the baby boomer generation can take to the grave with a badge of honor. In my experience, this is the least self-aware generation that we have here. Whereas millennials, uh, Gen Zers, to me, index higher, at least in my experience on the self-awareness scale than we do as Gen Xers, than our parents certainly did um, as, as baby boomers. So I think a lot of this level of self-awareness comes from what we experience back at home in our own families growing up. If we were used to talking about how we felt emotionally, used to talking about our weaknesses, our failures openly, and there was no shame in that with our parents, no judgment thing came with that, I think that we do better on the self-awareness scale. If there was a lot of shame, if fail failure wasn't something that was acceptable in the house, then I think self-awareness is one of those skills that's really hard to learn for people. And it takes a lot of effort, um, especially, at least in, in my network of, of friends and colleagues, especially for men, especially for men. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think vulnerability is, is a huge player in that. And you, and you mentioned that word when you were talking about that book. You know, I find it so fascinating because vulnerability to me is a, is, is a comfortable spot. It, 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 to me, it feels so real because it's it's the way that I really relate to people. I don't like fake relationships. I really want to know someone at a deep level. And you can't really do that. And you can't ask that, that individual to really share themselves without being vulnerable yourself. So I'm really comfortable in that spot. But I know that that's weird, right? I, I know that most people are not comfortable you find that that's that's been successful for you in terms of getting people to open up on the other side. You sort of take the first step, right, in terms of being vulnerable. One hundred, one hundred percent. I'll never ask them to do something that I'm not willing to do. Um, and I think as a leader, that's one of the lessons you learn as a leader is you cannot ask those people to that that, that you want to follow you to do something you're not willing to do. And uh, yeah, I'm 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 weirdly vulnerable and I'm weirdly open probably to the extreme. And I don't ask people to, to be the way I am, but I think that uh, it is, it's an incredible tool. And it's funny because I don't really view it as a, a sales tool, right? Like I'm a salesperson by, 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 by function as a CEO. I think all CEOs have to some degree be a salesperson, you're selling your vision internally, you're selling clients, whatever it might be. And I've found that the best way to do that is to be vulnerable, which sounds very odd, but that's, that's, my MO is I'm absolutely transparent about, you know, my insecurities and everything in between my, my, you know, things I'm super confident about, the things I'm, I'm, I'm super un unconfident about and, and everything in between. And, and I find that that allows others to completely break out of their business mode 
and have a real human like connection and conversation. I see that as a huge bridge to building trust, like what you're talking about here. To me, as a salesperson, that's why you've been so successful. And what I'm saying doesn't extend to the world of commodities. I'm not talking about selling commodities here. What I'm talking about is high ticket sales. Because, you know, if, if, if you're SaaS, if you're selling enterprise SaaS, let's say B2B high ticket, why is a buyer buying from you? They're buying from you because they trust you, because they have a relationship with you. You're somebody that they can, they, they can relate to. And to me, your ability to show vulnerability, to build that trust, that to me gets you to the sale faster. So, so this is a great segue to subscriber base. Let's, you know, it, it took us a few minutes to get there, but I do want to get there. <laughs> um, you know, talk to me about, you know, what subscriber base does. Like, why did you think about this as a concept? I mean, this is the world I live in, and I, and I, I probably know it far more than than most. Give me, give me the kind of the 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 origination story, and 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 really what you've turned into, and 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 how you saw it originally. Yeah. So. I've tried to tell this story in the shortest and most succinct way possible on a podcast. And it's really an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial story of failing, frankly. I was in the digital couponing space and I had a B2C digital business between 2011 and 2018 when Groupon was really hot. And what I like to tell people is I got to ride that wave up and then back down again. So should have sold the business earlier than we did. We sold it in 2018, probably should have sold it 2013, 2014. And our business model was a little bit different than Groupon's in that we, not, we were not knocking on doors of merchants. We were a coupon aggregator. So we would take all the discounts on the web, package them up, stick them behind a paywall, and then charge a membership fee to the end user to get access to the discounts. Kind of like your old entertainment book, if you will, but in digital format. And after the business was sold, had no idea, frankly, how I was going to pivot into doing something else, but really wanted to stick on this path of entrepreneurship, but didn't really have clarity on the next chapter. At that time, I had a lot of people asking me for advice as to how to do what we were doing, sort of like with the membership subscription model in our business and do it with their business, but sort of mimic what Dollar Shave Club was doing with razors, right? Hey, we're selling widgets. Can we do that thing that Dollar Shave Club does where we just automatically send folks this commodity or that product every month? What are the tools, systems, software that we need to make that happen? And of course, you know, Dollar Shave was a big story. They sold to Unilever in 2016 for a billion dollars. And after that, there was all this smart money, uh, or maybe not some smart money, depending on where, where you sit on the Wall Street spectrum developing interest in this world of direct-to-consumer e-commerce on subscription. And I got really fascinated because there were so many use cases in the US after Dollar Shave, right? There was the Honest Company backed by Jessica Alba. There was uh, Harry's, which was a Dollar Shave competitor. There was Birchbox and there was Ipsy and there was you know all the meal kits like Blue Apron that were popping up. And really, if you look across all these product categories, these use cases of subscription companies going direct to consumer were everywhere. And I just thought it was really fascinating because I had some experience as an operator. I saw the way the trends were shifting in the US and I thought, hey, I'm going to double down. I don't know how I'm going to double down, but I know I have some expertise. I have some knowledge. I want to keep going here. 
So I spent two and a half years researching and writing for my first book, which is called The Subscription Boom, which was published in 2020. So spent two and a half years, you know, working on the book and also developing the vision for Scriberbase. And I mentioned failure because the first positioning of it was like, hey, we're going to be a software company. We're going to take the products and tools that I built for my previous business and repackage it up and sell it B2B. That didn't work. We became sort of 3PL fulfillment consultants at one point, helping people find the right 3PL logistics partners. That didn't work. The only thing that was sticking was sort of my expertise in the space and helping people with strategy and execution, um, you know, as it were. So that's how Scriberbase, you know, had pivoted a few times and, and now has taken the form that it has, which is at this point, you know, a unique consultancy that focuses on building subscription businesses from scratch. And is it always goods based? Like, is it always a thing that is sent? Or is it sometimes a service? Is it sometimes something different? Like, cause, like, cause I always think about it. Like, I think people don't understand how many business models can be adapted to more of a subscription based model. Maybe give some, 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 some unique ones that people may not think about. Yeah. So the litmus test for this, I mean, there's three types of subscription businesses that are most common. The first is the first two will be sort of product oriented. And the third, to your point, is more of the everything else or the services side of it. So the first two on the product side are replenishment and curation. So replenishment is, you know, the Dollar Shave Clubs, the Amazon Subscribe and Saves of the world, uh, Honest Company with Diapers. These are commodities, consumables that people otherwise run out of every 30, 60, 90 days. And these companies are just automating the purchase and delivery cycle of that commodity. So Amazon Subscribe and Saves says, hey, Elon, we notice you you buy peanut butter a lot, right? Vitamin D and all those things. Five percent, you can just yeah. subscribe to peanut butter. We'll send it to your door every month. That's replenishment. So if you have a consumable product, I think you've got potential for a subscription business. For curation, it's the let's package stuff up for you under a theme. So Alon, you like wine or you like sports. We're going to curate a box for you. We're going to send it to you every month. You don't know what's in the box, but you love that surprise and delight element of it. And you look forward to that every month to getting that box. You know, BarkBox does it with with dog toys and treats. BirchBox does it with cosmetics, samples of cosmetics. That's curation. So can you package up a bunch of products, stick it in a box and, you know, curate it around a theme? That's 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 that second category. And the third category, which is the, the most common and much more broad because it extends to services based businesses. This is the access model right? Access to software in the case of SaaS, access to a gym membership, you know, be it Peloton or uh, a brick and mortar gym, an online dating site, all things streaming and video like Netflix and, and Prime and Spotify. These are all examples of subscription access. So those are the three. And what do you think is going to be, where's the growth going to come from? I mean, I'm a big believer in the shared economy. You know, I've, I've started to see some models that are, you know, subscription based for high end watches. If you don't want to buy your own watch or, you know, I think that, you know, cars and other, you know, big ticket items are going to start heading in that direction. So that's that's one area that I'm paying, uh, you know, closer attention to. Are there other other areas in which you think there's going to be a, a boom? Yeah. So cars is a great one. As you mentioned, I think we're moving away from the world of owning and leasing and just being able to access a vehicle every month that's 
suitable to whatever is going on in our life at that particular moment. So Porsche has the passport program or in some states, not all, but you can become a member, if you will, access a Porsche, uh, an SUV or 911 or whatever, and you can swap cars, I think up to three times a month and pay 14 or $1,500 a month for that privilege. You're fully insured, you're fully covered. You don't have to own a car. You don't have to lease a car. It's all taken care of. I think co-working is still really interesting. It was interesting pre-pandemic with WeWork, um, which is a classic subscription model, if you will. They even talk about how everybody in there is a quote-unquote member. And where things are going post-pandemic, I think with office leasing is super interesting as well. And I think that more things take shape in the world of co-working, including hotels and other hospitality industries like restaurants, repurposing their space for people to have more flexible co-working environments, all on subscription or on a membership access. What else are we seeing? I mean, connected fitness has gone crazy. Mm -hmm. So these subscription hybrid programs like Peloton. I'm wearing an aura ring right now. Oh, there you go. So when I, when I say hybrid, I'm talking about hardware, right? Primary product sale in combination with access to classes on a monthly fee. So there's a reason why you know, Lululemon bought Mirror for a bunch of money. I can't really remember what the dollar figure was, but they love that idea of selling the hardware, which was the actual Mirror, plus access to Mirror's classes on a monthly basis because that provides the company with stable recurring revenue. So I think connected fitness is super interesting. I think there's more that we see in the world of apparel and fashion in terms of rental, right? What's happening with Rent the Runway, uh, Ralph Lauren's got a, a rental program now, but the idea that, you know, you can rent style on an as needed basis, I think that's going to continue. I mean, it's been, it's been happening since I rented a tux back in my, you know, oh, yeah. high school uh, prom, but that was really, that's the only one that existed really. Yeah. So, so to talk to you about what people get wrong, you know, uh, we, we invest and lend and buy and sell companies all the time. And the subscription businesses are interesting to me. You know, I, I, I see a lot of them that, on paper, look really interesting, but I really feel I, I, like some do it really well, and then some I, I feel like are, are blowing their brains out spending on marketing. Their their churn rates are astronomical, and they're not really thinking about does a customer want this long term. They're thinking about land grab. You know, those are some of the, the things that I've seen people do really really wrong is just their marketing spin out of whack and their churn rates out of whack. But you know, when 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 you're finding you know your clients building businesses, you know what are the what what are like the the crucial errors that they're typically making? Well, category fit, market timing, and competition are three obvious variables that I think people sometimes miss. I don't want to say always, but sometimes miss. So a company, like I mentioned earlier, gets excited about these use cases and says, you know, we want to do what Dollar Shave does, and we want to do it with this commodity. And they just think that they can go to market and make make it work. And, you know, I don't want to talk about the client that, that we went down this path with, but, you know, big national retailer who said, we want to do this with men's shoes, not realizing that men on average buy a pair of black and a pair of brown shoes every two years. And thinking that you're going to fit a monthly subscription program into that equation just isn't in the cards. So category fit, number one. Market timing, uh, number two, obviously subscription businesses that started in 2010, 2011 saw, you know, great success because they got to ride this, this wave of cheap CPM rates on Facebook all the way up, 
right? So when we talk about custom, uh, cost of acquisition, you know, those metrics were incredibly attractive between 2010 and 2014, let's say, because traffic was cheap. So if you were a Birchbox or you were a, um, trying to think of, of some other players that started in around that time, Dollar Shave also, there's a, there's a few others, but the ability to take advantage of cheap traffic, I think cannot be overstated. So looking at, you know, where you think your cost per acquisition is going to land is going to be that second place that people trip up. Third, obviously competition, that's an obvious one. But the biggest one is the one you mentioned, which is this idea that it's all about acquisition. It's not. In subscription, the game is won on the post-transaction side. The game is won on the retention side. Everybody gets super excited about acquisition because that's sexy, right? How are we going to attract large volumes of subscribers across multiple markets? And how are we going to do that at scale? Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever. They go through this channel exercise and they think that's how they're going to win. Ultimately, if you have a leaky bucket and your retention or churn rate's out of control, your business is screwed. So companies that understand that it's all about retention, not acquisition, and focus their efforts on what they're going to do post-transaction, those are the winners. That leads me to my next question is, you know, in these commoditized marketplaces, you know, and someone's going to ultimately win, or maybe there's more than one winner, you know, it's the post-transaction that matters. But, you know, what I find is that, you know, it boils down to just really good branding as well. You know, I, I follow some of the, like the, these, these, not to be crude, but these ED subscriptions in Canada are starting to uh, propagate in the US. They're massive, like Get Roman and a few others. And, you know, it's, it's clever marketing. I mean, look what Dollar Shave Club did. I mean, it, that's a pure commodity. They weren't even in the business. There was massive competitors and the marketing that, that, that went into that brand, uh, it was cool, it was hip. So how important is the branding side uh, you know, of the equation for the ultimate winner? Because for me, it feels like it's a fucking shaver. At some point, you're just gonna buy the brand you like, but maybe I'm wrong. You're gonna buy, I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about being able to build a relationship and build trust. So, you know, one of the big overarching themes in my book is that we're moving from a transactional driven economy to a relationship driven one. Where brands that understand this shift understand that the game on the branding side is one where the company does things to deepen the relationship with the consumer. Subscription is a great way to do that because you're driving repeat purchases. And that recurring touch point with the customer is a reminder that you have a relationship with them, company to customer, and they have a relationship with you as a consumer of that brand. Transactions, sort of old school, this idea that we're just gonna, let's just grab as much transaction volume as we, we can, let's meet our quarterly targets, let's appease shareholders, all this, all, all this old school thinking to me is very short-sighted because it treats consumers like commodities, right? And direct to consumer branding is all about deep relationships with the customer. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about, you know, marketing being hand-to-hand -hand combat now, uh, which I totally agree because everyone is, uh, you know, people don't want to be, they don't want to feel like they are a commodity, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a horrible feeling for anyone to, to be left with. So couldn't agree more. So one other thing I wanted to mention, just because you, you made me think of it. One other thing I wanted to mention is that 
Dollar Shave, I think what they did so unbelievably well was create this water cooler effect. Like this idea that this is a brand, to your point, that people were talking about at the water cooler or at a cocktail party. I mean, their commercials are pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> before DSC, though, no, no guy was talking about their whole razor blade purchasing experience in a CVS or in a Dwayne Reed, or if you're in Canada, Shoppers Drug Mart. It just wasn't a thing. That's a boring conversation. But talking about this new razor subscription called Dollar Shave, where you buy razors and they just show up at your door every month. Now that's something to talk about. And it has nothing, frankly, to do with the commodity. It has to do with the whole experience. So before I let you go, I want to take it back, way back to you know your your Groupon days. <laughs> I I saw that coming. I knew that was a fad. It was clear as day. It was exciting. It was cool. And then the novelty wears off, and it went away just as quickly as it came. Do you see that same paradigm happening, or will it happen uh, with the excitement of subscription models? So the answer is maybe. I don't have a crystal ball, but the data that we're seeing doesn't show that. So in fact, it shows the exact opposite. With respect to the entire global subscription commerce market, which includes services, i.e. SaaS, and products on subscription, we're at about $650 billion in market uh, market share. And that's expected to grow to $1.5 trillion by 2025. And if we go just one level deeper, if you just look at the world of e-commerce, so subscription e-commerce companies, we're at about a 15, $16 billion market. And that's expected to grow to about a half a trillion by 2025. And I don't think it goes away. I mean, there's so much momentum in this space. You have sort of best in class players, Amazon with Prime, Netflix, Spotify, you know, Dollar Shave Club, Roblox, uh, DoorDash now with their DashPass programs. I mean, all of this extends into the world of loyalty as well, where companies are moving away from points programs to fee for VIP loyalty, which is just another subscription program, frankly. Um, on the back of the success with Amazon Prime, there are lots of companies heading in that direction as well. So I, I really don't see this going away. And frankly, as consumers, we love this whole experience of being able to automate the purchase and delivery cycle or just be able to set it and forget it with a brand. I mean, if we like it, just give it to us. We'll pay for it. While we were talking, I got a alert that one of my subscribe and save from Amazon just arrived on my doorstep. So perfect timing. <laughs> so, uh, so Adam, I mean, I could literally ask you questions for the next four hours, but I know we're limited. So, you know, to, to wrap it up, as I always like to leave people with, uh, you know, some, some words of wisdom. I mean, you've been through you know, fa failures, or as we would probably call it as entrepreneurs, you know, lessons. Um, and, you know, you come out the other end, uh, a more seasoned uh, entrepreneur because of it. For those that are listening that are young and want to, you know, want to create something, want to start a business, what are some of the the, the lessons or the, the pieces of advice that you could impart through your journey that, uh, that they could take away from, uh, from, from, from this uh, podcast? Hmm. So some things that I wish I would have known early on is that your ability to experiment with the market and test your idea, your product, your service in a sort of a cost-effective or lean manner is a great way to figure out whether you have some sort of successful entrepreneurial path. 
So can you find, you know, people like to use the term product market fit. Can you find product market fit quickly? And can you do that cost effectively? And when you don't find it, can you pivot fast and try again and use that lesson, use that failure as just an experiment? I wish I would have known that. And it sort of, it dovetails into my next one, which is remove your ego from the equation. You know, people think, you know, especially young entrepreneurs, I see this all the time. They have the best idea, right? They have the best business, wink, wink. Like they're going to be the next Uber. They'll be the next whatever. It's bullshit. I mean, it's complete bullshit. The ability to just remove your ego and understand that it's not about your idea. Ideas are commodities. It's all about your execution of that idea. Can you execute? Can you make it happen? And is it something that the market actually wants? And like I said, nobody cares about your idea or how good it is. Will people whip out their wallets and pay for it? And how much will they pay? Do you have a market for something like this? And it doesn't mean necessarily that your idea is a bad one, right? Webvan is just Amazon fresh, you know, 1.0. That was a huge colossal failure back in the mid nineties. And it's just market timing. It was a great idea. Groceries on, on delivery, not having to step into a grocery store. It's just, we didn't have smartphones back then. The market wasn't ready. We weren't armed with the capabilities necessary to make that idea come to life doesn't mean it's a bad idea, but it just means, you know, the market dictates what's going to happen with your business. So I think removing ego is a huge piece. And the third piece of advice that I wish I would have known and what I would share with the audience is forget about your weaknesses. Just focus on your strengths. Like I was compelled, right, to, to work on my weaknesses early on. I was a great writer. I didn't, you know, double down on that strength in my 20s. Um, I realize I'm a great writer now. It's taken me 20 some odd years to, to realize that. But I was thinking that I had to work on my Excel modeling skills, like Excel modeling skills. I mean, I, if, I, if I started working on my Excel modeling skills, then I probably now would be able to build a pivot table at this point. The point is like, I can find other people who have that particular skill set, who can do it in 10 times, 20 times, 30 times the amount, this 30 times the speed that I can at this point. So being able to just recognize, okay, I'm weak in these areas. I'm strong in these areas. I'm just going to focus on my strengths. I'm going to forget about my weaknesses. I wish I would have known that earlier. Totally agree. Comes down to self-awareness. Totally agree. Well, on that note, that's a perfect segue. Adam, thank you very much. Uh, for those that want to follow along in your journey, where's the best place where they can uh, find you? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. If you want to learn more about Scriberbase, you can go to Scriberbase.com. I also have a podcast that I host called E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we interview founders. We have great conversations like when we're having Elon, and they can find E2 wherever they get their audio. Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, thank you uh, for joining us. And until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.